This is episode 69 of No Truce Bard, the golden era. So I want to ask, is there such thing as a GOAT? And GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. I examine this concept that we hold to in hip-hop. I also discuss which was the more important year in hip-hop, 1988 or 1998. Definitely listen and give me your opinion as well. Check this episode out and make sure you follow me on Instagram at underscore no truce bar podcast and make sure you subscribe to the youtube channel as well definitely check this episode out take care thank you and enjoy Truce Bar, and I'm in a different environment. I actually was going to do this podcast somewhere else, but this is going to be a quick one. So I wanted to do one really quick because uh, I'm a huge hip hop head. I'm a huge hip hop enthusiast, and I don't think I really convey that a lot on my platform. And so I was having a discussion with a friend of mine the other day. And if you're a fan of hip hop, a term that you hear a lot is the golden era, like the golden era, exactly what was the golden era. And if you talk to older people who may have been introduced to the genre, let's say sometime in the 80s, what they'll tell you is that the golden era was 1988. 1988 represented a paradigm shift in the genre. It represented um, an enhancement in the way that MCs craft their rhymes. It represented an enhancement in the way MCs would attack a beat. Uh, You start to see the introduction of the multi-syllable flow with people like Big Daddy Kane, people like Cool G Rap, and their influence was so preponderant that so many artists now that we consider legendary from Jadakiss to Cool G Rap, excuse me, (laughs) from Jadakiss to Nas, Big Pun, for example, um, prior to him dying, Cool G Rap was cited as like one of his biggest influences. There's even a story, and I think Fat Joe confirmed it, that the first time that Big Pun met Cool G Rap, Big Pun actually kissed the ring of, uh, of Cool G Rap. So he had a profound influence. And I mentioned that Steve Stout said on an interview that Nas, when he first came out, a lot of times people in my generation, when we think about Nas, we think about Rock Kim. There have been uh, magazines where they said that Nas is the second coming of Rakim, but Stout and even some older heads that I know, they point out to the fact that actually when Nas came out, he was often uh, compared more so to Cool G Rap as opposed to Rakim. And so I pointed out G Rap, uh, even some even, you know, other legendary MCs that came out um, that put out, you know, classic work in 1988, for example, KRS-One with Boogie Down Productions and that classic album, you know, by any means necessary, that was the name of the album. Uh, and you look at KRS-One's impact, you know, you can 
everybody from 50 Cent to, to, to Nas to Jay to uh, Immortal Technique, so many different artists cite KRS-One as an influence. And I actually had the, the privilege to, to, well, I didn't really meet, but I was in extremely close vicinity of KRS-One. I actually went to go see KRS-One perform and he, uh, he started a cypher in the crowd and it was one of the most iconic most hip-hop moments that I've ever had the privilege to experience. So I definitely understand why people mention 1988 as being um, a huge turn in the culture because this is something I came up with where I take someone like Rakim, <clears throat> where technically he was releasing his sophomore album in 88 called Follow the Leader. But I cite Rakim because when you look at, for example, when you look at Rakim, you can actually see the shift in attacking rhymes, the shift in how you craft your verses, more usage of imagery, uh, expansive vocabulary, more metaphors. These things I would say you can give credit to Rakim for, because if you look at the way rappers rapped um, prior to Rakim, it was far more direct uh, far more simplistic, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but it was far more uh, straight to the point. There was no like wordsmith wizardry or anything like that. Like you didn't have like double a lot of double entendres and all of these things. I think Rakim really deserves that particular credit. And so let's run down a few albums from 1988. So we have "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back" by Public Enemy. We have uh, Long Live the Cane by Big Daddy Kane. We also have Straight Outta Compton by N.W.A. Uh, we have Follow the Leader. We have By Any Means Necessary, uh, Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One. Um, what else? Oh, we have EP EPMD. I don't know if that's, hold on. Let me pull up something real quick, folks, because I can't remember every single album that came out in 88. So let's mention some. So you have the ones that I named. MC Light, Light as a Rock, uh, Tougher Than Leather, Run DMC, classic album. Um, I mentioned Easy Does It, I believe I did. Got Salt and Pepper come out that year with, uh, excuse me, a Salt and Pepper, yeah, their album came out that year. Um, Ice T put out Power. Uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff, Will Smith came out that year. Strictly Business was the EPMD album. Uh, the Great Adventures of Slick Rick came out in 1988. So you had a profound impact on the culture. I don't know what it was about that year of uh, 1988, but it's, it's something about the eights because I'm going to do another podcast. And on the next one, I'm actually have a guest on. And I want to discuss 2018, too, because I think... In a few years, as hip hop enthusiasts, we're going to look back on um, 20, 2018 as being a prolific year as well as far as the hip hop albums that were crafted and what came out. And so now with the argument that 1988 was the better year, the biggest problem with that, in my opinion, is that hip hop was still kind of in this adolescent stage. It didn't really mature yet. The other problem with 1988 being the most impactful year, I may argue that it might be the second most impactful year, but the reason why I say it's another issue with it being the most impactful year is that 
1988 was extremely New York oriented. It was extremely New York centered. So all of the music that came out, all of the, 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 the points of reference, all of the culture was New York oriented. While it was good because a lot of us across the country were able to enjoy it, the negative is that um, it didn't connect with you culturally. Like New York, I'm sorry, I'm in a, a different environment, so I'm kind of like, but anyway, uh, it didn't connect with you on a cultural level. Like when you look at, um, like for example, when the South started to come up or the West Coast started to come up, but to that credit, we did see the NWA album in uh, 1988. And that really uh, had a profound impact as well because you got the introduction of West Coast hip hop. And we got the introduction of Dr. Dre. And, and you can make that argument that Dr. Dre is top five, top five producers. Maybe he might be the best producer of all time. I don't know if I would go that far, but um, <laughs> a lot of people would say Dre was the, is, might be the GOAT producer. I'm a DJ Premier guy, but that's a different conversation. But um, you do get that naissance of West Coast hip hop. And did I'm gonna have to look, but I wonder did the DOC drop in 1988 as well? I don't think he dropped in 88. That might have been 89 that the DOC came out. So um, yeah, so for me, like I said, I think 88 is the second most important year in hip hop. You know, we have like a lot of profound albums that came out. Like I said, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And I really, really have to respect Chuck D as an MC, uh, as an intellectual. Um, and as a historian and an activist as well, because during the time of, um, well, just at, upon his release, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, um, along with other projects he was involved in. Then, especially when he, you know, they put out uh, Fight the Power, which was one of the premier songs on uh, Do the Right Thing, Chuck D was receiving death threats. Like it wasn't just music, you know, people were kind of labeling him the new Malcolm X. And Chuck D went through a lot. He had death threats. There were places he couldn't perform. Um, it was real, man. Like, so these guys, same thing with NWA. And I think the the other beautiful part about 1988, although I'm kind of arguing against it, the other beautiful part is that you had artists that were really doing what they're they were rapping about. You have artists that were really barred from arenas. You have artists that really had the police waiting for them outside of the show when they would come out. You know, and I'm not saying that artists now aren't really about what they talk about, but it just was such a raw, gritty era. You had, and then the the, the consequence of that is that you had a lot of street affiliations in the in the industry uh, at that particular time, I and mean, you still do. But I think it's kind of a lesson to a certain extent. But you had a lot of gang activity, you know, drug money and all that stuff that was kind of flowing through the, the hip hop industry in its early days. Um, but, yeah. So quick recap. Take a nation of millions old is back. Strictly business by EPMD. Follow the leader. Uh, you had long live the cane. You had by any means necessary with the uh, with boogie down production. So, like I said, 88 is a powerful year, but I'm, I'm going to make a few quick points about 1998 as well. So for me, for me, the, 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 I break this down into two parts. There is a, um, there's a golden age epoch. So the golden age epoch for me is from 1998 
excuse me, from 1988 through 1998. I think uh, those 10 years will be unmatched, period. So maybe one way to look at it is that 1988 is the very beginning. 1988 is the catalyst for the golden era of hip hop. And 1998 is when that particular era comes to an end. So for me, I think 1998 was the more impactful year. We got to see hip hop blow up. You know, you had hip hop in Hollywood. We've seen Tupac and Poetic Justice, Juice, Above the Rim. We've seen LL Cool J in Hollywood. We've seen uh, hip hop uh, versus police brutality. We've seen hip hop in sports. It was it was a lot more mainstream. But then the other thing about 1998 is that other regions really started to get their shine. So one album I want to throw out there is Aquemini. Aquemini introduced, well, excuse me, Southern Player Southern Player excuse me, Southern Player Listed Cadillac Music officially introduced Outkast as one of the greatest rap groups to ever walk this earth's surface. Aquemini solidified that. So before uh, Aquemini, you had Southern Player Listed Cadillac Music, which came out in 1994. After that, you had their sophomore effort, which was AT Aliens, that came out in 1996. 1998, we get Aquemini. Aquemini, to me, is not just a hip-hop album. Aquemini, to me, is just a, 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 a masterpiece of, of, of wordplay. It's a masterpiece of storytelling. It's a masterpiece of being one of the first albums to properly encapsulate um, what it was like growing up in the South and various issues that weren't really spoken about because New York or LA would always control the narrative. And Aquemini, I feel like, was that breakout. And don't get it twisted, there were a lot of other Southern albums that were classic that did a lot of stuff, but I think, I truly feel like Aquemini took Southern hip hop to another plateau. Um, and you have to give it its props. To me, I think Aquemini is the best Outkast album. A lot of people say AT Aliens or Stankonia, but for me, Aquemini is the best Outkast album. Hands down, you cannot tell me differently. And to take that a step further, Aquemini might be in my top 15 or top 10 hip hop albums of all time, but that's a different subject. Also in 1980, excuse me, 1998, you have the miseducation of Lauren Hill. I don't even have to go into that. The miseducation of Lauren Hill, um, prolific. It's it just musically, it's just an anomaly. You have a, a perfect amalgamation of lyric, brilliant, thought-provoking lyricism. You have the perfect amalgamation of, of sonically the songs, the production, the backgrounds, the background uh, of the album, the continuity, the tone of the album. All of these things were almost done perfectly. It, it, it literally is an album without flaws. You have that Heavy Mental comes out in, in, in 1998 as well. One of the things I found prolific about Heavy Mental is that Killer Priest was one of the one of the first MCs. And you could say maybe Raz Kaz did it a little bit earlier on Soul on Ice when he had songs like uh, Ordo Out of K.O., which is Ordo Out of Chaos, uh, Nature of the Threat. But he didn't really do that for one whole album. Priest uh, gave us references to biblical uh, biblical references, a lot of Hebrew Hebrew kind of Israelite sort of doctrine. He would reference certain pieces of arcane information. So I think 
<clears throat> to enjoy the, the heavy mental album. And not saying that you had to be like adept at uh, 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 biblical history or 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 Hellenistic history or anything like that or, or ancient Egyptian culture. I'm not saying that you had to be adept at that, but it, I think if you read a lot, you got a lot out of the Killer Priest um, album. It was just it was just a huge monumental album. And then Bible was on there. And if you've listened to Liquid, Sword, Liquid Swords by Jizza, Jizza actually premiered that song on his album. And it's an acronym. <clears throat> this is not what Bible means, by the way. It's an acronym they came up with. But it means basic instructions before leaving Earth. And I never really heard a song like that. And to me, what the song did, it, 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 it examined um, the impact of the New Testament and examined Christianity and examined the images that we received of Yahshua ben Yosef, which we know as Jesus, um, or Yahshua bar Yosef, because bar will be the Aramaic equivalent of that, or son of Joseph, um, gave us the, the, the history behind some of the images that we saw. So I thought 1998 was powerful because we got an album like that from Killer Priest and let me make it even. So let me name some of the albums that came out in 88, 98, excuse me, because I don't know every album. So let's go through it. So Black Star. Listen, man, <laughs> we get most deaf and title of quality with Black Star. And that is a classic hip hop album. They have uh what is the song they had? Respiration with them with uh most deaf Talib quality in common. One of the most beautiful songs ever written. I mean, the chorus was just like, it hits your soul. And I have to repeat it so much on my mind that I just can't recline. Blessing holes in the night till she bled sunshine. I mean, beautiful song. Each one of them had amazing verses on there. Hove was back with Hard Knock, Hard Knock Light, Volume 2. One of my favorite posse cuts ever. Reservoir Dogs is on Hard Knock Light, Volume 2. We have DMX with his dark and hell is hot. Now, I want to mention this. This is what I want to mention. In 1998, we get, hold on, let me go back. 1998, there's a debut album from a record label that would go on to make history. Juvenile releases 400 degrees, 1998. Now, this is what, this is kind of, I'm getting sort of to the crux of my argument here. The reason why 98 is so important is that the classic hip hop music that you were that you was receiving out of New York, excuse me, out of 1988 was primarily New York oriented. 1998, we see classic albums that are like coming from all different regions. So I want to point out Juvenile 400 Degrees, classic Southern hip hop album love the album but what makes the album important and what makes uh is dark and hell is hot important and flesh of my flesh bone of bone came out last uh in 1998 as well forgot all about that um but what makes those two albums the dmx albums and the juvenile album important is because before cash money before rough riders you didn't really see like record labels slash camps that had a whole roster of artists. Now, you did have Wu-Tang Clan, but that really wasn't kind of, that wasn't really like a label either. 
you had the Juice Crew, but that was just kind of more like just an association of various talented MCs, which uh, Rough Riders and Cash Money is. But the difference is, is that uh, Cash Money and Rough Riders became empire like labels. Um, definitely, they filled that void after the, the, the end of Death Row. You know, they really filled that void. Um, you had no limit as well. Um, that made their their step onto the scene in 1998. These three labels would go on to inspire other entrepreneurs from the South to create record labels and to manage artists. Uh, also, we see an, a preponderance of black wealth in, with these particular labels. Uh, we see that they, they, they not only looked at themselves as MCs, but they also looked at their brand as being entrepreneurs, as uh, branching out into different industries, you know, fashion, liquor, uh, movies, all these different things. And you didn't really see that with prior labels. So you didn't really see that with Death Row. You didn't really see that, honestly, with Bad Boy. You didn't really see that with the Juice Crew. You didn't really see that with any of these other groups or camps that was before. In 98, um, in 98 those were the first real camps to try to expand in that direction to do movies to 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 do clothing to do liquor to do all these things rockefeller would go on to to get into that but rockefeller to me i i they were already there they were just continuing to grow but you see this from the south and other regions as well so 1998 isn't just isn't just important for the music that came out that year but it's also important for the impact that came that happened that year and the impact was more massive than what you saw in 1988 because the impact in 1998 wasn't just relegated to the music the the artists that were coming out in 1998 also made an imprint on other industries that were often touched by hip-hop but artists weren't really able to monetize it as well and so i think that's a, another thing let me name a few more albums that came out in 98 so we had, uh, let's see here, what's some other classics? Fat Joe, Don Cartagena, classic album that came out. Try to put out the Love Movement. I wouldn't call the Love Movement a classic, but it was decent. It was dope. Um, listen, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> so 1998, we get another classic from the West Coast Legend Exhibit. I'm going to say this about Exhibit. Exhibit is one of the most underrated artists ever uh, across. I don't care where you're from. He is a phenomenal lyricist. He's been a phenomenal lyricist. And it just shames me that or pains me rather not shame, but it pains me that when we have these discussions about who's one of the elite lyricists, who's one of the top lyricists, we don't ever mention Exhibit. Exhibit arguably has three classic back to back albums. When you look at, at the speed of life. And in 98, we get 40 Days and 40 Nights, which I love that album. Love it, love it, love it. I mean, you know, and I love the group that he had with Raz Kaz and Saphir. Um, I think they were the GOAT. Did they call themselves the Golden State Warriors? I can't remember. But they did quite a few songs together and they had a great chemistry. And so, yeah, Exhibit came out. You get, you're getting classics from the West Coast. You're getting classics from... Uh, uh, the South, you're getting classics from New York, 
uh, Gangstar put out Moment of Truth. So the beautiful part is that we still have the old school element putting out quality music with the newer artists that are coming out as well. And I believe the Slim Shady LP came out in 98. Let me make sure. Uh, let me make sure. Hold on. Let's see here. See, I don't normally see me on the computer. Let's see when is Slim Shady LP come out. Ah, okay. Actually, the Slim Shady LP came out in 99. So I was wrong. All right, so I can't include that in, in the 98 class. But 98 was just so powerful because we're getting classic music, but we're also seeing the, the growth of uh, hip hop and classic thought provoking hip hop from all regions of the country. We also see hip hop artists becoming moguls. We also see hip hop artists um, getting into uh, getting more heavily into film, um, various clothing lines and, and, and whatnot. So I think that was a, a, a beautiful thing as well. Um, to switch this, this conversation, um, this is going to be a quick one. There is no GOAT. I always would say Jay-Z's the GOAT. Sometimes I would say Nas is the GOAT. Sometimes I would say Rakim is the GOAT. But my problem with this is uh, when when people have conversations with me about hip-hop, when people have conversations with me about hip-hop and they'll ask, they'll say, well, hoy, who do you, um, who, wh who's in your top 10? Who do you think is the GOAT? Um, so I tell people this, I have my personal top 10 and by personal, I mean, they fulfill my needs in the hip hop artists. They make me feel like di di my personal list is what I consider dope, what I'm attracted to, the type of lyricism I consider thought provoking. And I started to notice throughout the years, whenever I would have a conversation with someone and they would talk about their top 10, it would just be full of people that they listen to all of the time. So I'm like, there isn't really no top 10 because I've never heard an objective top 10. Whenever I see, talk to people and whenever I converse with people and they say their top 10, they state their list. It's just people that they listen to all of the time. There's really no criteria. It's just these are artists that I like to listen to. And when I started to really uh, let that settle and let that marinate, I felt like I can't use what I like personally to be a top 10. Because then I'm being biased. Then I'm not looking at what various artists did for hip hop. You know, should Ice T not be in the top ten? Should Ice Cube not be in the top ten? Should Chuck D not be in the top ten? Should Kendrick Lamar not be in the top ten? I mean, what what is going to be the objective variables that go into making somebody the goat, the greatest of all time? For those that you don't know, that don't know, that's what the acronym means. What goes into that? And there's really no objective way to convey who the GOAT is because it's all going to be based upon being subjective, even in, in the very nature of this particular episode is subjective. Because I'm saying that 1998 is better than eight, 1988 as far as hip hop goes. Slightly. I mean, if you take away 98, of course, 88 for me is one of the best years in hip hop or the best year in hip hop. Followed by 96. 96 was crazy, too, but that's a different conversation. Um, but there's no goal. There is no greatest of all time. Because then it's like, what standard are we using to measure the greatest of all time? So what if I'm a guy that loves political hip hop? Like, I listen to Dead Prez. I listen to uh, Chuck D. I listen to KRS-One. That's all I listen to, right? And 
your message has to be in line with that particular subgenre of hip hop for me to consider it dope. And if I'm judging who's the GOAT from that point of view, it's going to be radically different from somebody who loves state property and love Big L and, and, and Nas and maybe Jay-Z. They're going to have a different point of reference. So then it becomes, if you're coming from the political hip hop camp in juxtaposition with the camp that loves uh, Jay-Z or Nas or you love, you know, you might, you know, too short, whoever, right? Who is right and who is wrong based on their criteria? And there's really no definitive, objective way that you can deduce that down to something empirical. And so that's why I said there is no GOAT. And for me, if I was to come up with a top 10 list, I'm not going to tell you my personal favorite people, because if I have to look at it objectively, some of my personal favorite people don't belong. And if I have to be objective, they do not belong in a top 10 list. And I'm talking about of all time. Because then I have to look at what are some ubiquitous traits that all great MCs should have? What are some factors uh, beyond MCing? Like, are we going to take into account record sales? Are we going to take into account, um, I don't know, record sales? Uh, we could talk about, you know, collaborations, discography. So it's a lot of different variables we can look at. And I think a lot of times when we come up with these lists or we say that this person is the GOAT or the greatest of all time, I don't think we're looking at any of that when we when we make these particular suggestions for this person being the GOAT or that person being the GOAT. And so for me, like I said, I, I don't believe in a GOAT. I don't think Jay-Z is the GOAT. I don't think Nas is the GOAT. I don't think anyone is the GOAT because there are too many different factors, too many different MCs out there to just say, hey, this one guy is better than everyone. He has no chinks in his armor and there's nobody before or after or ever will be that will be better than this person. It's really hard to say that because I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a cash and carry sort of guy. Like you got to give me numbers and data. I can't go off of just opinion um, with something that serious. Like, you know, what's the better year in hip hop? or your top 10, I'll be a little bit more willing to listen to that. But when we're talking about this GOAT talk, who's the greatest of all time, it's a tough sell for me. I don't believe in it. Um, I don't, you know. So I, I, I don't think there is a GOAT. Uh, and I can't really pick one artist that I just feel like no other artist is better than, or they've just mastered everything that, that uh, includes... Uh, being a dope MC, like they just mastered it and nobody could ever meet them at that particular level again. I, I just don't think so. Um, so, yeah, so that's my opinion on the go. So I'm going to finish this episode out and get my predictions on the dip set and locks battle. I'm going to wrap this puppy up. So uh, August 3rd, dip set, the dip set gang and the locks, they go at it in a versus battle. So, for me, you know, I just wonder what what's going to be kind of the, the framework of the battle, because are there only going to be allowed to use songs where they've done as a collective or can they use anything? Because I think if they just can only use songs that they did as a collective, as a group, Dipset and the locks may be a little bit more evenly matched. Now, if they can use 
songs they've done as a group, and if they can use songs they've done independently as well, <laughs> Dipset's going to get washed, like legit. If the, <laughs> if, if, if the locks can also use like solo projects and collaborations with other people as well, Dipset's getting washed. Their the locks, their discography, and then if you look at Styles, Sheik, Luch, and, and Jada Kiss, their solo discographies and collaborations they've done with other people would overwhelm anyone. So if, if they're allowed to use everything, the locks wins. You know, the locks through them. And when I'm saying the locks, I'm saying in the sense of the locks as a group and independently have collaborations with Jay-Z, have collaborations with Biggie. Dave East, Immortal Technique, Talib Kweli, uh, Common, Royce, so many different artists um, that they can they can use. So uh, that's going to be a tough one. So I would say if they just are, if they're just going to do our group project versus this group's projects, then I think it might be a little bit more even. And it's no shade at Dipset. Dipset has a lot of great music. They have a great uh, discography of work. It's just the locks are are the locks. They're like an elite level group. They are an extremely elite level group, and they're not to be taken lightly. So, just to kind of like wrap this up, I'm going with the locks uh, uh, this this uh, this Tuesday. So, you heard it here on No Truth Bar. I'm going with the locks. But anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this episode up. This is a quick one. I've been doing a few quickies. I'm going to be back later on in the week with episode 70. I'm going to line up guests for the remainder of the summer going into the fall. Um, thank you so much for the support. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at underscore no truth bar podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is in the link on my bio. Love y'all. Take care. Peace. You've just listened to episode 69, The Golden Era. Make sure you follow the podcast on YouTube at the No Truths Bard podcast channel. And you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Thank you so much. Take care and peace.